the language of prayer. Oh Lord, today I ask that you would come in power. You would quicken this word by your spirit. That you would make plain to us what the language of prayer really is. And that, Lord, you would call us out of our prayerlessness. That you'd call us into the prayer closet. That, Lord, we wouldn't be satisfied with doing things in the flesh, but rather we would do things in the Spirit. Thank you, mighty God. I pray in your name. Amen. We are the National Prayer Chapel. It's a prestigious name and a name that we did not choose nor desire. It was given to us when an evangelist that we had never heard of before came to Washington, D.C., sought us out, and asked if we would spend a day praying together. We spent the day praying together. At the conclusion of that day of prayer, he asked if we would be willing to drive to New York City to meet Pastor David Wilkerson. I'd always wanted to meet Pastor Wilkerson, and so said yes. And so we drove and met Pastor Wilkerson. as We sat in his office, sharing and talking. The Lord began to convict this evangelist that he was to pass a mantle to us, a mantle for the National Prayer Chapel. He was then an old man, somewhere in his 80s. And he said to us, the Lord gave me an assignment. I have never been able to fulfill it. The assignment was to establish a national prayer chapel. And Pastor Wilkerson stepped into that and said, is this to be a parachurch or is this to be a full congregation? And I said, if the Lord is calling me to it, it will have to be a full congregation. It will have to be a church. He said, in that case, I'll join you in it and I'll support it. And he has done so. For the next year, Jan and I fought the concept of a national prayer chapel. We didn't want that kind of name. We wanted a small country church, if you please. We had no desire for the success of the world. We had no desire to be on some kind of stage. We simply knew we were to speak faithfully the word of God and let it lay. We were no longer to pursue success. We had both done that in our careers all of our life. Now we were to pursue Jesus Christ and him alone. It was about a year later that the Lord began to bring deep conviction into our hearts that this was his call. And we said, Lord, we will, we will be faithful to your call to establish a national prayer chapel with the understanding that we will not go in debt and we will not ask anyone for money. That you will do it. 
that it will not be done by our strength or by our power, but it will be done by the power of the Holy Ghost. And so now these years we have stood waiting upon him, doing exactly what he's told us to do. It doesn't matter to us what the circumstances look like. It matters only to us that we are faithful to the word of God to our heart. And we speak what he gives us to speak. And we do what he tells us to do. And then we leave it alone. No hype. No song and dance. Straightforward. This is the word of God. Now, you would guess that walking through this has meant a great deal of time in the private personal prayer closet. It has, days and months and years, hidden away, unsung, battling in the prayer closet. And out of that prayer closet time, we began to develop a prayer language. A prayer language. It's not enough for me to simply tell you to pray if I don't also share with you what happens when I pray and how I pray. And so today I want to be very personal in sharing with you the inside of our prayer room. The Lord had us take one of the rooms in our house and set it up as a prayer room. That's the room I flee to first in the morning. And that's the place I go at night. And some days I never leave it. I simply stay there in the presence of God. Now as I begin to develop this more specifically in concrete terms, I pray that a picture will begin to emerge that will have significance for your own personal life. Now, for those of you who are visiting today, I will simply share that both Jan and I come out of a background of positive thinking. We come out of a background of corporate training. We come out of a background of mixing humanism with the spiritual. And when God began to deal with us and pull us out of those conflict resolution seminars, when he began to pull us out of all of that and isolate us in a prayer closet, we didn't know how to pray. If you say, I'm going to take a full week and I'm going to simply be before God for this week, how do you do that? It's wonderful to say, go before God. And I've recommended to some of you, go to your prayer closet, take in a, a bottle of water, several bottles of water, close the door, and don't leave until God has met you. Hide in that room. Tell your work, I'm on vacation. Go in that prayer closet and stay there until God meets you. Well, what happens in the prayer closet? That's the part we usually don't talk about. Let's begin in Mark, the 11th chapter. 
Mark the 11th chapter, verse 12. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Now he's described perfectly the nation of Israel at that time. They were all leafed out. They had great economics. They were successful in business. They were successful in all they put their hand to. They had struck a deal with the Roman authorities and had great autonomy. They were a fig tree in full leaf, beautiful to the eye. And then Jesus said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And you know the story. The fig tree immediately began to wither and die. Why would the fig tree wither and die? Because it had no fruit to offer the master. Today, it's a wonderful description of the body of Christ. We're very leafed out. We have all the beautiful buildings and facilities. Never has there been a time in the history of the Christian church when pastors have been paid so well. Huge salaries, beautiful cars. The congregants come driving their beautiful cars, living in rich homes. This is the American church. But the fruit of the Spirit is not to be found in it. And this is what drives us, it drives me to the prayer closet. As my brother Kurt said, we read the scriptures, but it's not enough to just read the scripture. We have to let the scripture that we read drive us to the prayer closet. And once in that prayer closet, God can begin then to deal with our hearts. And we need to know right up front that what happens in that prayer closet will determine what Jesus' word will be spoken over our lives. If he finds no fruit of the Spirit, Jesus will speak over our lives a word that will cause us to wither and die. And his judgment will be upon us. Now, maybe not tomorrow or the next day, but the judgment will come. And so Jesus begins this time of teaching about prayer by saying, if I don't find the fruit of the Spirit in your life, a curse will be spoken over you at some point. Now he reaches Jerusalem and Jesus enters the temple as he has done many times before. But this time, he is aflame with a passion that is now just days away where he will be crucified on that cross. And he, he begins to clean out that temple. He goes to the money chambers and, and he flips over the tables of these men who were exchanging monies. He goes to the tables and flips them over and the coins go rolling across the floors. 
He drives out the cattle, the sheep that are being sold for the sacrifice. Notice what happens. Verse 15, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? So Jesus now is giving us the definition of church, a house of prayer. Not a house of prayer for white people or black people or Asian people or all nations. There is no racism in the house of God if it's the house of God. If it's a house of God, all men and women are red, covered by the blood. But you, you've made it a den of robbers. In other words, you've turned the church into a business. Some churches have a profit center out front in their Starbucks coffee franchise. Or they have a profit center in their tapes. Or they have a profit center in their books. One person said to me this last week, the church is just a business, brother. The church is just a business. No, the church is not a business. The church is the house of God. And it is a house of prayer or it is not the house of God. Now the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began to look for a way to kill him. They were not pleased with his interference in their business. Yes. I dare say if you did that in some churches today, they might call the police and have you carried off. Now as they're walking out of Jerusalem... They see, the fig, they see the fig tree and, and they say, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And God responds to this. Jesus Christ, God, responds to this by beginning to teach them how to pray. Have faith in God. When you go in the prayer closet, you have to go with faith. You have to enter that place by faith because... If I go in the prayer closet and I kneel down and I begin to speak, well, who are you speaking to, you foolish man? I don't see God. You're talking to yourself. It's a yoga exercise. No, by faith, when I go in the prayer closet, whether I feel the presence of God or not, I know he is there. By faith, I know he is there. Jesus said, have faith in God. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, 
but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Now here's the problem in the prayer closet. I go into the prayer closet and I am faced with a problem. Whatever the problem is, I have to begin my prayer time by giving honor to the name of Jesus Christ. Following the model of the Lord's Prayer, Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So when I go in my prayer closet, the first thing I begin to do, regardless of the problem that has driven me to that prayer closet, I go into that place and by faith I begin to proclaim that Jesus is to be honored, that the Father is glorious, that all that he has said is faithful and true. I praise his name. But it doesn't take me very long if the problem is pressing to move beyond the praise. And I get to that part of the prayer that said, ask this day for your daily bread. Now this prayer is very clear. When you go into the presence of God and you are being driven there by a problem, it's because you don't have enough bread. You can't solve the problem. Now, I've taken the National Prayer Chapel into the prayer closet. And I've said, Lord God, there has to be a revival of godliness in Washington, D.C. There has to be a place in the city where a standard is lifted up, where men and women can come and they can pray. A place where your spirit hovers over. A place where men and women are convicted of their sins and turn away from it and walk in righteousness. Where arrogance of heart is broken. Where a proud man is humbled. There has to be a place in Washington for this kind of work in the spirit. This is not something done in the flesh. This is done in the spirit. Now you also can go into the prayer closet as I've done many times. And said, Lord, there's just no money to pay the bills this month. There's just nothing to pay the bills this month. They've mounted up high. I can't cover them. Now, I have to be honest with you. As a pastor in the church, the way I used to do it is when there wasn't money to pay for the bills. Or if I had some grand project that needed to be taken care of, as I have right now. But I haven't told you about it. I told Jesus about it. I'm not going to tell you about it. I, I used to go to those that I had ministered to and established relationships with and talk to them on the side and say, Brother, you see this deal? What can you do to help us? And after I had enough of those people put together, I'd say, let's have a church dinner. Now, you stand up and tell the brothers what you're going to do. And then one of them at the end would stand up and say, okay, this is what we're going to do. What are you going to do? Let's get some pledges here. How many times I've seen building funds raised that way? Have any of you experienced this kind of... Today, I can't do that. Today, I go into the prayer closet with that financial need. And I wait in that prayer closet until the deal's done. 
and the money comes. You all have never heard me stand in front of you and say, oh, we've got this grave problem we're facing. We've got to raise $20,000 today. You've never heard me say that. You'll never hear me say that. That's the prayer closet business. So now what happens in the prayer closet? As I go in and I praise the Lord, and I'm going to use the National Prayer Chapel as my example, I go in and I praise the Lord, and then I get to the part of the prayer that talks about, give me this day my daily bread. And I said, Lord, there's not enough bread at the National Prayer Chapel to do the work of revival in Washington, D.C. Now I've got a problem. Immediately the problem arises because I can think of ten gorilla things I could do to make this church grow. The problem is I'm too big And God's too small. So now as I go into the prayer closet and I've praised his name and I've waited upon him and now I'm at this bread issue, I know how I can solve my own problem. I don't need to spend this time in the prayer closet. All I have to do is go out and get busy. I can find a way. Where there's a will, there's a way. But I have to tell you, How many men and women have bankrupt their lives trying to bring revival to Washington, D.C., and they've never been able to do it? Oh, they've been able to create a dog and pony show. They've been able to bring a million men to the mall. But Washington, D.C. was untouched. Untouched. The crowds up at the corner that I walked through after the Million Man March were cursing us. The radical homosexuals were cursing us. They weren't falling on their face, repenting of their sin and crying to the Lord for salvation. The city was untouched, except we left a lot of garbage behind. That's all we contributed to the city of Washington was garbage. And I want to tell you today, anything we do in the flesh for Washington, D.C., all we'll leave behind is garbage. And I've left my share of it. I won't do that again. So I'm in my prayer closet. I have to let God begin to whittle me down. Now I'll tell you how he whittles me down. Maybe he doesn't whittle you down this way, but he whittles me down. He begins to give me scriptures. And as I go to those scriptures and I begin to pray those scriptures to him, often those scriptures are about my sin. About my sin. About my sin. So I find that when I begin to cry out to the Lord and I'm in a desperate situation and I have a time deadline I need Him to answer by, He moves with excruciating slowness as He deals with my sin. One brother, we prayed in his living room. We cried out to the Lord. He said, by tomorrow noon, if God does not hear my cry, I'm finished in Washington, D.C. I'm 
the ministry is over. The church is closed. I'm out of here. I said, brother, you can't put God on a time schedule like that. You've got to trust him and you've got to wait on. No, tomorrow at noon. Well, tomorrow at noon, God had done nothing. He said, I'm out of here. Put his family in the car and headed for Colorado. Ran out of money. Every resource was gone. He sat in a parking lot. He wouldn't wait for God here, so he waited for God out there. In a Burger King parking lot with two flat tires on his car and no money. Then my telephone rings. Oh, Pastor Ray, I'm in a terrible situation. We've been in the car all night last night. We have no money. What do we do? Pray. God told us to rescue that family. We rescued them financially. They were able to get jobs. They got their jobs. They said, we are not going to ever go back this way again. We're not going to trust God again. Most recent phone call. The wife. Terribly ill. Life-threatening. She was the primary bread earner. Again, they're in crisis. Unwilling to wait on God. From crisis to crisis to crisis. Oh, let's be clear. There are others who've said the same thing. And they've gone from financial success to financial success to financial success. And they're thumbing their nose at God and they're saying, I'm not going to wait on God, I'm going to do it myself. Their fig tree won't wither till the judgment. I praise God they're getting their heaven now. I hope they enjoy it. Because it's all the heaven they'll get. I'm never envious of a wealthy man. I praise God that they're getting a taste of heaven. Because it's the only heaven they'll know. So I'm in the prayer closet. I'm struggling before God. He's pointing out my sin. He's dealing with my heart. My heart isn't to deal with my sin. My heart is to get God to move. So we've got a conflict now in the prayer closet. I want God to move. He wants me to deal with my sin. So now, as you can imagine, only a small portion of the time am I doing much talking. And only a small portion is he doing much talking. We're at a stalemate. Have you ever been like that with your wife? She's not talking. And you've said all you know to say. And you know if you say any more, there's going to be an explosion. And when mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And so you're... Eggshells. I have to tell you, much of my time in the prayer closet has been eggshell time. 
I haven't wanted to say anything more to God because if I say anything more to Him, I'm going to be dealt with. And so this... This deadlock takes place in the prayer closet. You're not getting your way. God's not getting his way. And you want to just say, I'm out of here. But you stay there because you know there's nowhere else to go. It's either God or it's nothing. When you've burned your bridges behind you and you have no place to go but God, what are you going to do? Go put the business plan in operation again. I can't tell you how many times I've said to Jan, can we just drop this whole National Prayer Chapel deal and go get a job? I want to open my own company. I know what to do to make money. It's not hard to make money. We could live a normal life. And she says, yes, and without God. So we made the agreement. We would never use the D word, divorce word, in our family. Well, we also made the agreement we would never threaten to stop doing God's will. So here you are in the prayer closet. You're fighting with God, and your arms are not long enough to reach Him. And His arms just tap you, and you're down. (laughs) And God is carving you off. He's, He's... Chipping away. He's making you smaller. And you're beginning to see that God is bigger than you thought he was. And you're smaller than you thought you were. And you're, you're arguing with God and you're saying, God, this has to happen. My reputation is staked on this. And he says... Whose reputation? I already gave my word, God. Whose reputation? And he won't move. He won't stop asking that question until you deal with whose reputation you're concerned about. God will never move as long as you're more concerned about your reputation than you are his. He will not answer your prayer. You can get disgusted. You can clear out of that prayer closet and go do God's work in your flesh and say, God did it all. But you'll know in your heart it was your own cunning, marketing, entrepreneurial skill. And sooner or later, you're going to have to go back to that prayer closet. And his first question is going to be, whose reputation? He has an elephant memory. He never forgets his questions. And if you don't answer his questions, he comes back and asks you again and again and again, whose reputation? Until finally you have to confess, okay, it's my reputation. And then you know it's sin. And then you have to repent. And he carves you down a little smaller. Carves you down a little smaller. And then the cell phone rings, and you say, I've got to take that call. Imagine you're leaving the presence of Almighty God to answer your cell phone. You answer, you come back, and God is gone. I've discovered He doesn't wait on me in the prayer closet. I wait on Him. He doesn't wait on me. 
He knows that what I really wanted to do was just get out of his presence. I'd had all I could deal with. I don't want any more. Now, I hope what you're hearing is that in the prayer closet, there's a great deal of conflict that goes on. And if you're not willing to deal with conflict, don't try to pray. Except these little prayers, now I lay thee down to sleep. Row, row, row your boat gently down. You know, just do the child ditties and get out of there and hope you can get out alive. Don't be serious about pursuing prayer with God unless you're willing to let him deal with your inner heart and your sin because he won't answer any prayer until he has first dealt with that inner heart of pride. Because he knows if he did, I'd twist it somehow to bring more praise to my name. See, I'm I'm good. I'm a good man. Look what I've done. So I've made these decisions, and look how they worked out. I used my faith to conquer every odd. And look how I'm blessed now. No, God will not allow His glory to be touched. And so when you come into the prayer closet and you begin by praising him and then you begin to deal with the problem that's at hand, he begins to carve you down. And as you're carved down, you begin to see the glory of God. Reese Howells liked to to talk about this in terms of being in an ocean, threshing about, drowning, That's why you go to the prayer closet. And then as you begin to pray, as you begin to cry aloud to God, and he deals with your sin, he says you reach this place where finally you see a rescue boat. And you grab a hold of the side. You're still in the ocean. You're still in danger of drowning. But now you've at least got the side of a boat. Well, what is that? In my life, as I have pressed into God and I've let him deal with my sin and he's convicted me of my arrogance and my pride, faith has begun to rise up in my heart. Sometimes I've had to look at it several times to identify it. Is that really faith? Am I really crazy enough to begin to think that God will do this for me? Because you see, so many times in the prayer closet, it ends up in hopelessness and despair. And disgust. I can't tell you how many times I've jumped to my feet in the prayer closet and left and said, I'm not going back in there. If God's not going to answer me, it's all right. I'll make it through some way. But always the Holy Spirit is calling me back into his presence where he can once more deal with my heart. And slowly as he deals with my heart, confidence begins to rise up in me. As my mother lay dying on that bed, 
I was awake through the hours of the night and I was crying out to him and I was saying, Oh God, have mercy on my mother. She was laying on that bed, gasping for breath, fully conscious. Still, when I would go and touch her arm or put a cool cloth on her brow, her eyes would pop open and her mouth open, gasping for air. Her neck was locked at that point. Her whole body was rigid. She would still try to smile. So I would speak words of comfort to her. Jesus is here, Mother. You can trust him. I found a new prayer beginning to come up out of me. Instead of saying, oh, Jesus, have mercy on my mother. I begin to pray, oh, God, Jesus, thank you for your mercy for my mother. Now, somewhere I made a transition. I wasn't even conscious of it in the prayer closet. I made a transition from beseeching and begging to saying thank you. That's when I got out of the ocean and began to hold on to the side of that boat. Faith was rising up in my heart that God had his arms around my mother and that he was going to carry her safely through this incredible, painful, stinging time of death. I'd awakened. And the first words that would begin to flow in my mind and out of my mouth was, Oh God, thank you for giving me the gift of this mother. Thank you for her kindness and her gentleness to me. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that she taught me your ways when I was at her knee. Thank you for the hours of reading that she did that introduced me to the stories of Scripture. Thank you for the hours of pressing flowers and teaching me what the birds were and what the trees were. Thank you, Jesus. I trust my mother with you. Do you see, when that began to happen in my soul, I instantly recognized it because I've been there so many times before. The National Prayer Chapel, I've been on my face weeping before God and saying, God, This church is going to fail. It is going to crash. It's going to burn. There's no way you can take this little handful of people and do anything in this city. Let me go, Lord. Don't bind me to this vision. Release me from this thing. And then my prayers over the years began to change. And I began to say, Lord, thank you for my brothers and sisters at the National Prayer Chapel. Thank you for the work of sanctification that you're doing in their lives. Thank you for convicting them of their sins. Thank you for what you're doing in this house. Lord, revival's already starting in this house. Thank you. It's not my kind of revival. I want a great, mighty outpouring of wind and fire, and everybody says, look at this. No, God's not doing that. He's just reaching down in hearts, and he's changing them. It's changing. 
It's his revival, not my revival. Do you see the transition? You're in that job that you can't stand. So you come to a point where you're no longer fighting with God about the job. Instead, something is rising up in your heart and you're saying, Lord, thank you for that boss. Thank you for that job. When you get to that point, you know you're beginning to walk into faith. And until that begins to happen in your life, know that you're walking in sin before God and he's trying to deal with it. But the first sign of deliverance is when you're saying thank you. Now, I can't tell you the excruciating pain of the process I've just described. And if you've not yet gone through it, I urge you to get going, because if you're going to heaven, you've got to go through it. God is building people who know how to deal with the circumstances via the Holy of Holies instead of the cunning of the human heart. He's teaching us as a people how to change the physical realm without touching it with our physical flesh. How to change it by the Spirit. How to change our husbands and wives and our children. How to change our family via the prayer closet instead of flesh picking at them. Nagging them. Throwing stones at them. The Lord wants to do the work. Via the prayer closet. Now. As you cry out to God and he begins to deal with your sin. As you repent, as you confess that sin. He'll reveal other sin. But finally, you'll come to a place where that issue that you're crying out to God about, you begin to have a song of praise rising up in your heart. You're saying, I don't know what you're going to do with this yet, God. I don't know what the outcome of this is going to be, but I confess I trust you. I can't fix it. I can't do the work. I don't have the ability to change what's happening. All I know is that I honor you, Jesus. And that reminds me of a scripture, Habakkuk, the third chapter. Habakkuk, the third chapter. If you don't have this underlined in red, you need to do so. Habakkuk, the third chapter, begin with verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud... And there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go to the heights. Well, you see, that whole passage is, again, this process I'm talking about in the prayer closet. Because it doesn't say at the beginning of the passage that he makes my feet like a deer and enables me to go to the heights. It starts with an empty pen. It starts with no solution to the problem. 
It starts with total bankruptcy. I can't make it happen. I can't change it. But, oh, God, I trust you. And then it moves to a third stage. I'm in the prayer closet. There's nothing I can do, but I have to have God move on my behalf. I have to have an answer. I start fighting with God. And he starts revealing my sin. After I stop fighting and begin confessing, the faith begins to rise up in my heart. And I begin to say, oh God, I trust you. No matter what, I trust you. Then you move to that third phase. Where that faith begins to blossom in your heart. And you begin to say, I know, O Lord, that what I have asked of you is according to your will. Because I have waited before you. And because it is according to your will, I know that you have heard my prayer and you will answer my prayer. Now let me give you the scripture for this one. It's found in the book of 1 John, the 5th chapter. 1 John, the 5th chapter. I'll begin reading with verse 14. 1 John 5, verse 14 This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of Him. In other words, we move into a third phase in this prayer closet experience. Now we are identifying specifically what God has asked us to pray for. We went into the prayer closet asking for what we desired. But out of the convicting power of the Spirit as He comes, we have repented of our sin. And we've now come into a place where we're simply willing to say, God, you do whatever you need to do. I'm going to trust you. I watch you now. But then as we continue to press into him, we come into this third place in the prayer closet where we say, now I know God will give me what I have asked of him because I know it is according to his will. It will be done. It will be done. Now, Reese Howells likened this to having somebody in the boat pull you into the boat. So now you're sitting in the rescue boat. You're not thrashing out there in the water. You're not hanging onto the side. You are now sitting in the boat. That means that both of your hands are free. And now part of your job is to reach out into that water and begin to rescue others. While you wait for God to accomplish what he has said he would do. So you're pulling others into the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're confronting them with your sin, with their sin. You're speaking to them the word of God. You don't have an answer to your prayer yet. But you now have been rescued. 
Because you know that God's promise is the same as currency in hand. You know that what God says is the same as money in your hand. That he will do what he has promised to do. And you can trust it. Now, it doesn't matter to me if we're talking about healing for physical disease. If we're talking about financial situations. Or if we're talking about jobs. If we're talking about revival coming to Washington. If you are willing to go into the prayer closet and deal with God himself. If you're willing to fight through. This is what the old timers meant when they talked about praying through. This is praying through. Now, what I want you to see is that a man can pray through very quickly once he chooses and understands how to do this. The first time I prayed through took me several years. Several years because I had never heard of how to pray through. I had to go into the prayer closet, lay on my face and say, God, I hate it. I don't know what this deal is. You're not talking to me. I'm talking to you. You're not talking to me. And get up and discuss and walk out and say, prayer doesn't do anything. Then I'd read the books on prayer, the power of prayer. You know what I discovered? I discovered there's no power in prayer. It's all in Jesus. No power in prayer. There's only power in the word of Jesus. As I was taught by the Spirit how to wait before Him, how to confess my sins, how to let Him carve me down until I was so small and so still. I tell you, there are days when I've been in the prayer closet and Jan has come up the stairs and she's come into the prayer room and she's said something to me and I've not responded, I've not moved, I've not wiggled because I was afraid if I moved, I would lose the voice of God. I was afraid suddenly I would hear what she would say to me and I'd become big all at once. You know, I have that way. I can go from being very small to a giant in a click. My pride will rise up. Which of us in this house are not arrogant before God? We're all arrogant. We're Americans. By definition of being an American, we're proud. To get into that prayer closet and let God humble my heart and carve that down until finally I can hear his voice. And he begins to cause faith to rise up in me. And then he promises me that it's done. Now I can tell you, revival is coming to Washington, D.C. I've seen it. I've heard it with my physical ears. I've heard the weeping before God as men and women have repented of their sin. I've seen them streaming forward for baptism, coming right out of the congregation and right into a baptismal tank. No time, just confession and weeping and coming up and getting baptized right there and starting a new life in Christ. 
I've seen this. I know this. The Spirit of God has shown me this. I have no doubt in my mind that God will do what He's promised He will do. I'm just now being faithful day by day as I wait for Him, and I'm praising Him for revival. It's coming. It's already starting in the hearts of men and women. I see the evidence already in this fellowship. I see it in my own heart. I've prayed through on this. Have you prayed through on this? Have you prayed through on revival for Washington, D.C.? It's time for you to do this. Because if you go in the prayer closet, the first thing the Lord will ask you is, can I start the revival with you? Can I start it in your heart? And you're going to say, well, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, what's that mean? What do I have to give up? What do I have to do? Hey, God, I'm okay with you. I'm a good guy. I do my best. No, no. Lord's going to start to deal with your heart and say, can I have you? Can I have your time? Can I have your money? Can I have your dreams? Can I have your children? Can I have your grandchildren? Can I have your family? Can I have your husband? Can I have your wife? Can I have all your brothers and sisters? Can I have it all? If you don't say yes to that, you either have to leave the prayer closet or just stay there and be miserable. Because God is not going to move until you've said yes to all of those. I've just heard today that there's healing needed in this house. And I prayed about this issue. And I asked the Lord if he would send healing in this house today. And he told me he would. Now you see, I can pray through today on that kind of an issue very quickly. Because I've done it over and over. And I've watched God move. And I've watched God heal. And I've watched God restore. And once you gain a place of intercession, once you gain a place of authority in prayer, if you don't dive back into sin, you retain that place of authority with God. Now there are new places He wants us to achieve. We've called it places of abiding, John 15. Places of remaining in Jesus. So I ask you today, what places of authority do you have in Jesus? Where have you prayed through until you have gained the victory and you stand in that place of authority with Jesus Christ where you can reach your hands out and grab a hold of another and pull them into the gospel of Jesus Christ?